we're bestowed with the gift of real immunity. As human beings, we are designed to move towards perfection. We're designed to detoxify, to be self-healing. I mean, look at a baby. Look at the, the beautiful energy that you see when you look at a baby that's pure and vibrant and alive. I mean, this is what we're imbued with. That's real immunity. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast. I'm Amber Magnolia Hill, and this is episode 30 with Scylla Whatcott. Before we get into it, I got to let you know that coincidentally, since I recorded this interview over two months ago, and I'm just now finally getting it out, um, we are updating the Mythic Medicine shop this Friday at 9.30 a.m. California time, and releasing our first batch of extra potent elderberry elixir of the season. Uh, these always sell out very quickly. We really try to keep up with demand, but, um, you know, just kind of nice synchronous timing for me, who I never advertise my products on this podcast. But since we're talking about immunity today, um, just what perfect timing with this. So that's mythicmedicine.love slash shop Friday morning 9 30 October 19th and if you're listening to this way later um, there might be some left you know we'll keep making new batches and keep putting them out there uh, we're also going to have our bedtime bear sleep elixir back in stock sold out so quickly last year when we first released released it so we made um six times the amount this year and hopefully hopefully there will be plenty for everyone also got our fur tip oxmel redwood tip elixir and your basanta elixirs back in stock so all right with that out of the way oh this episode is a big deal to me um it is immunity real immunity supporting the vital intelligence of the immune system especially in our children is something that is so important to me and of course, I feel a little nervous as well because we have to talk about vaccines when we do this. And this is something I've been avoiding for a long time. I've been asked many times to talk about it on the podcast, but I hate arguing with people on the internet. <laughs> and um, I just, I swear, like nothing is more controversial than vaccines, right? But um, it's just because of finding Scylla's work, because of finding this option of homeoprophylaxis, because of what my family went through this summer with shingles and pertussis, uh, I feel ready. I feel ready to talk about it. So since my oldest daughter was born 12 years ago, I have envisioned my approach to mothering as twofold, like the foundations of my mothering. And the first part of that is love and just being able to provide a steady, unwavering backdrop of love in the home and in our relationship all the time um, so, that, so that she could unfold, you know, into her truest self um, in a safe space, knowing that she'll always be accepted and loved. And then the second part of that has been immunity. And what, what do I do to make sure that 
her body has such a strong sense of itself, you know, physically and energetically, um, so that she can deal and process whatever comes, whatever comes her way, especially, you know, I've always been interested in disease, especially infectious disease. It's part of why I became an herbalist, um, especially in this changing world uh, with <laughs> autoimmune issues becoming, I, you know, I've joked before on the show that autoimmune issues are the new infectious disease. And that's not really true because infectious disease certainly has not gone away. Um, the ones that we used to be afraid of, the ones that we now vaccinate for, the ones that were already steeply on the decline before the vaccines were introduced, um, those aren't the ones I'm worried about so much. But it's these mutating viruses that that worry me. And, you know, I had Stephen Herod Buner on episode eight of the show, and we talked about how this is the 100th anniversary of the great flu pandemic of 1918. And Buner's book, Herbal Antivirals, and the books that that book introduced me to um, have really shown me that, you know, we're just waiting for the next pandemic. Um, viruses are incredibly intelligent, and they mutate, and they spread, and we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know what it's going to look like. So cultivating this really deep, real immunity so that whatever comes my daughter's way now with both of them um, has been has been a focus of mine, and so we're going to talk about that. And I am not going to get into vaccines in this intro, though. Um, I'm going to record an outro for the first time ever, and that's when I will really get into vaccination. But right now, I want to not take up too much time from getting into the interview. Um, so in the outro, I will talk about vaccines. I'll talk about the story of how measles was at my daughter's school in 2016. I'll talk about our experience with pertussis, which is whooping cough this summer, um, the difference between cell-mediated and humoral immunity, and which is the one that you really want, which is the one that vaccines provide temporary relief or temporary um, immune boosting by using. I'll talk about my three favorite vaccine books. I just think that these are absolutely fundamental to anyone who really wants to understand um, the bigger picture, you know, just beyond the mainstream information, beyond what the pharmaceutical companies are paying to put in front of your eyeballs. And talk about the vaccine trade-off. Um, so, you know, let me just say right here, though, that like, yeah, if, if you are vaccinated, you are less likely to get the diseases against which you're vaccinated. That's totally true. Um, at least in the short term. And if you're lucky, and if they, you know, work for you, they don't work for everyone, and they don't work for anyone long term. Um, and the real trade off in my mind comes from the meddling with the vital intelligence of the immune system, and how we're creating new autoimmune diseases with this really over the top vaccine schedule that we do in America. Um, and really overall, like, uh, weakening the intelligence of the immune system. So let me also say that, as I say in this interview, I think that the pro-vaxxer, anti-vaxxer dichotomy is false. It is not a black and white issue. There's, It's all gray. It's all gray when it comes to immunity, autoimmunity, vaccines, health. It's so complex. It is so much more complex 
than we can than we can really fathom. Um, so I just don't buy into. I do not buy into. There are pro vaxxers and anti vaxxers, and um, you know, especially of course the anti vaxxer thing. I don't know anyone. Okay, I know one lady, and she's the only person I've had to actually unfriend on Facebook because her anti vaccine posts were so over the top and just like veering into the dangerous and ignorant. And I, it made me understand why some people think that anti-vaxxers are a real thing and are a crazy thing. Cause there's a couple of them who, who really are, but most parents who question vaccines, um, are, well, first of all, highly educated. There's like actually studies showing that they're people who have had the privilege of learning how to um, really do research around these things. And the more research you do around vaccines, the more likely you are to be like, huh, I'm not sure if this is the best choice for us right now. So, you know, most parents I know who haven't vaccinated or who have vaccinated on a slower schedule or vaccinated one kid and then not the following kids um, are not like screaming in the streets, <laughs> you know, about how the CDC are killers. Um, they just want like a more nuanced approach and more um, conversation around it and for the truth to really be out there and for, you know, the big, big pharma, big money to be separated from what the actual research shows and what people's real lived experiences are. Um, when in this interview, I wanted to define the word no-sode real quick because we talk about this. No-sode is the the pill that you are giving your child when you use homeoprophylaxis. Um, so, you know, in the, let's say, varicella, HP, the little bottle, the little pills, the little homeopathic sugar pills, um, the super diluted varicella virus that's in that bottle that is in those little pills, um, that's the no-sode. So when you hear Scylla or maybe myself use that word, that's what we are referring to. Um, I also want to say that usually in, in my understanding, varicella, which is chickenpox, is not a part of most HP protocols because it's a non-issue. Chickenpox is a non-disease and it's crazy that we vaccinate for it. I'll talk about that in the outro. Um, but the reason that we did it. And the reason that I even had it in our home, because it doesn't come with the kit that we got, um, was because my oldest never got chicken pox, as I say in this interview. And so with her turning 12, I just thought, well, you know, I tried to expose it to her many times when she was younger, she didn't catch it. So now at least I can give her this homeoprophylactic dose of the varicella virus, um, in a super diluted form, which she will have no negative reaction to just a small immune reaction. Her immune system gets educated about how to respond to this particular disease. Um, and so we had it in the house and we were going to start our homeoprophylaxis program the next day, this last May, when I got diagnosed with shingles. Um, so you usually start with pertussis <laughs> and the irony that my kids actually got pertussis the next month and that they might not have if we had started with pertussis is not lost on me at all. Um, but what happened was because I got shingles, I was really worried that my little one, my two-year-old would get chickenpox, would get the shingles from me. And that would, it, 
be chickenpox in her body because that's how Varicella first presents itself. Um, and I just did not feel prepared to take care of a little one with chickenpox while I had shingles in my head and could barely freaking think straight. Um, so we started with the varicella for both of the girls. And just in case anyone out there is familiar with the homeoprophylaxis dosing schedule and is like, why did they do varicella first? Um, that's why. I wanted to also touch really quick, you know, in, in the interview, Scylla asks me, like, why, why is it that I am able, why do I trust the vital intelligence of my kids' immune systems? Why have I been able to make choices that are so outside the mainstream? And I, I start talking, and I say this in the interview, but I really want to um, emphasize again here that information is power. And it is worth it to spend hours researching this stuff, not just, I mean, hours and hours. I've, I can't even count how much time in my life I've spent researching vaccines and, and the immune system as well, ever since my first was born. Um, you know, beyond just websites, beyond just what is the first few pages of Google and stuff that is paid for by the pharmaceutical industry. You guys, the vaccine industry, they make billions, billions. I just read the number, but I'm forgetting it now. They are making so much money off of this. And, you know, like we, we all know that when money is a motivating factor, um, things are going to be a little bit warped. So really going deep into the literature, really reading the stories of other parents whose children have been vaccine injured, which is a real thing, you know, the government, there's a website where people um, report their injuries and there's a whole like body set up where they pay out for people who have been hurt. Like it's, it's not some myth. That's not some crazy people online making up stories like this. You know, this is real. You probably know someone who's gone through it or at least have been touched by a story that you read somewhere. Um, and, you know, I really want to make the point, too, that medical school is not the only place to learn this stuff and, in fact, is a real hindrance. Um, I've read from a number of different doctors that they're like, we didn't, we didn't cover vaccines in medical school. There was like that one day where we talked about the vaccine schedule, the vaccine schedule, how, when, to, when to give the vaccines and in which order. And, um, and of course, that number has tripled since my childhood in the 80s. We now give three times the amount of vaccines that we did then. No other country in the world vaccinates like we do. Um, and so just this idea, the cult of the expert. We, we talk about that in this interview, the cult of the expert. And the thought that a doctor who barely knows your child, knows more about what is best for them and what their immune system needs than you do. It just makes me so sad that, um, that we live in a society that tells us that that's the case. Uh, so I also just, aside from being very focused on research, science, looking at the studies, looking at what's really out there, I really deeply trust the vital intelligence of the human body. Um, I really do. And I choose to put my trust there and in my own intuition and instincts as a mother uh, over fear and over this idea that someone outside of me and my family knows what's best for my child more than I do. <sighs> a few months ago, 
going back to my interest in infectious disease and in the great flu pandemic of 1918. Um, and I'm going to tie in a little ancestry into this too, which is something if you've never listened to this show before that we talk a lot about. So I've always heard the story that my husband Owens, dad's dad, Grandpa George, was adopted. You know, when I'm trying to do genealogy and like find out more about Owens' family, he's like, well, yeah, my grandpa was adopted, so we don't really know, um, you know, what who his parents were or what their last name was or anything beyond that. And then Owens' mom was here this summer, and we were at Ancestry.com open, and I was asking her questions about both her side of the family and her ex-husband's Owens' dad. Um, and she told me that, oh no, actually George was adopted by family, um, because his parents died in some sort of like disease outbreak. And I was like, the great flu pandemic of 1918. (laughs) She was like, yeah, I think maybe so. Um, so I started looking on what we already had on Owen's family tree on ancestry and I found their records and sure enough, sure enough, grandpa George's parents, Ernest and Lena McCollum died in the great flu pandemic of 1918. Uh, George was born in August of that year and they died in December. And this was, I know from reading so much about this disease outbreak, um, during the last wave of the outbreak, there were three big waves. And so they caught the tail end of it. I mean, I just can't even believe how like awful this is. And I'm guessing that Ernest was in, in the war in World War I. Um, and I think like the final discharge of soldiers back home happened right before he came home and probably shared, shared the virus with his wife and they left a three month old baby behind. Um, so we figured out that Lena's brother and his wife took in baby George. So he was adopted by family. Um, And so he got his mother's maiden name, which is Lindsay, which is Owen's last name. So it's still a family name. He was still in the family. It was really neat to finally get that whole picture and to learn more about that whole branch of the family going back through that. And and that Lindsay is a family name. You know, Owen kind of always felt like it wasn't. And it was just, you know, a quote stranger, the adoptive parents' names. Um... But anyway, I was just, I just been so struck, so struck by the fact that Owen's ancestors died in that pandemic. Um, and so every time before I do an interview on this show, I burn a little mugwort and set an intention or say some sort of prayer. And I just, before I interviewed Scylla two months ago, I said the most heartfelt prayer. I just felt like the profundity of what it is to die of an infectious disease. And so my prayer was for Ernest and Lena and everyone who has ever died from an infectious disease, for everyone who has died or been hurt by a vaccine, for every researcher and doctor who has gone against the grain and told the truth, and for all the mamas who have had their intuition shut down by, quote, experts. And having said that, let me also say, again, because it's so complex and it's all a huge gray area, that I totally um, acknowledge that vaccines have saved people's lives and have played a positive role in some ways. Um, It's just the way that we do it now is so over the top. And the information that we have have learned um, as a species (laughs) since since, um, 
the idea of vaccines were developed, like we really need to look at immunity in a more nuanced way. I'm going to quote Dr. Kelly Brogan here. She says that vaccines are predicated on a 200-year-old science developed conceptually long before our discovery of the double helix, microbiome, or epigenetics, and without a single true placebo-controlled trial under its belt. So, I mean, that really, the double helix microbiome and epigenetics really looks to how much more we know now about the human body and how immunity works and the damage that can be done when we try and get immunity from the end of a needle or a pill or some sort of magical antidote that's actually not not at all building true, vital, intelligent immune systems. Um, so let me tell you real quick about the Patreon offering this month and it's free. It's not going to be behind the $2 a month paywall. Um, it's a graphic that Scylla has created called the health helix. Uh, we talk about it a little bit in the interview too. And it's just, it's just one page that kind of shows how starting at baseline, you can either improve health and vitality or go the opposite direction um, and how there's, you know, a domino effect with every choice we make. So, you know, she, she talks about this in the interview that like a, a pediatrician friend of hers noticed that all her kids who have asthma had um, eczema first. So what happened was they tried to like repress the eczema and then it drives deeper into the body and becomes asthma and that goes deeper and deeper. And so this, this one page downloadable PDF at patreon.com slash medicine stories um, will just give you a little visual representation of how we can spiral upward into health or spiral downward into chronic illness. All right, let me tell you a little bit about Scylla. Scylla Whatcott, H-D-R-H-O-M, C-C-H, Ph-D. Ph-D is the only thing I know there, Uh, is a board-certified classical homeopath with a BA from Arizona State University, a diploma from the four-year professional program at Northwestern Academy of Homeopathy, Minneapolis, and a PhD in homeopathy. An An instructor at Normandale Community College, she's also the author of There is a Choice, Homeoprophylaxis, and co-author of The Solution, Homeoprophylaxis. Scylla is the executive director of Worldwide Choice, an organization undertaking evidence-based research with homeoprophylaxis, or HP, and training medically licensed providers to administer HP. She offers individualized HP programs for adults and children. Scylla has been a guest lecturer in London, France, Scotland, Ireland, Indonesia, the USA, and Canada, and was featured in Episode 7 of The Truth About Vaccines. She has organized and directed international conferences in 2015, 16, 17 about homeoprophylaxis with leading researchers from around the world. Scylla has published articles in Pathways, Homeopathic Links, Organic Lifestyle Magazine, Holistic Moms Magazine, Natural Health 365, Green Med Info, Fearless Parent, Healthy Home Economist, and the Weston A. Price Foundation's Wise Traditions. She is the recipient of the 2016 Public Service Award from the Weston A. Price Foundation for her work with HP. Scylla is the producer and director of Real Immunity, a film about the intelligence of life and how we can overcome fear to access the resources we need to build real immunity. 
Of course, we talk about the film a bit in this interview, and I really just cannot recommend it enough. Uh, Realimmunity.org, I believe. As the mother to children adopted from Russia, Taiwan, and China, and one biological child, her deepest desire is to see families everywhere heal and thrive. All right, so stick around afterwards if you want to hear more um, in-depth, in-depth talking about vaccines themselves. And can I also say, dude, I respect all the choices that parents make around vaccination. It is so complicated and hard to know what's true and what's right and what's best. And there's so much fear. And of course, all of us, every single parent makes the choice that they think is best for their child. So dude, seriously, no judgment on my part. It's by far the most fraught and complicated and difficult choice I think that we make as parents. So dude, all love, all good. If you've already vaccinated and you regret it, no guilt, no guilt, no judgment. Just keep loving those children and do everything you can to to build natural, real, vital immunity. Okay, so let's hear more about that now from Scylla Woodcock. Hello, Scylla. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Thank you, Amber. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm very happy to be talking to you. I was um, really blown away when I first discovered your work. And um, it just, it's, it intertwines with so much of what I'm interested in and so much of what I have been speaking and sharing about with my audience for years and has really deepened my interest and even my knowledge <laughs> in this area around infectious disease and health and immunity. So thank you so much for everything you've done and for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Yeah, so I I thought we could start out, get a little bit of your background and, and learn a little bit about how you came to be doing what you're doing. So I wanted to, to ask you to please tell me more about your mother's death and what you witnessed and what you learned from that experience. And then how a, a visitation from her later in your life set you on the path that you are now on. Sure. So when I was 15, she was diagnosed with lung cancer and it was uh, fairly progressed. So they gave her about six months to live. And my sister, who was about six years older than me, was very interested in supplementation and natural medicine. This was in the 1970s. So it was the corner health food store and, you know, an education from the person who was behind the counter at the health food store. And my sister started giving my mother uh, different supplements and vitamins and reading. And I remember there was a book by Adele Davis about uh, nutrients and supplements. And my mother rallied. I mean, she was doing great. And they were amazed at her progress and things had stopped growing and the prognosis was looking better. And then at one point when they were complimenting her, my sister would drive her to these appointments and sit outside and wait. My mother came out in tears saying to my sister, um, they told me I needed to stop the vitamins because they commented to her how well she was doing. And she proudly announced her daughter was giving her supplements and they said, that's going to interfere with your treatment. You've got to stop that. So she stopped all the supplements and it was a matter of weeks. 
um, later that she died. She went downhill very quickly and died. So it was it was pretty traumatic. And those were the days when cancer was it was a bad word and people didn't discuss it. It was almost uh, said in hushed tones in the 1970s and there was no open discussion or planning or kind of uh, trying to find closure amongst family members. So it was very difficult. It was very traumatic. And I, I mourned for many years over her death. It was, it came at a time in my life when as a teenager, I really needed that influence of a mother. So time went on and I uh, went on to college and got a degree in dance, actually, from Arizona State University. And I danced professionally with a company. I loved the field. Um, I danced with a Chinese woman who put me in touch with a home for unwed mothers in Taiwan and found me a baby, my first child, that we adopted. And then after that, I adopted two others, one from mainland China, one from Russia. In the middle of that, I got pregnant in my late 30s, gave birth to a biological child of our own, and was on this path with dance. I was dancing professionally. I had a small company. Um, I had a studio. I worked with high schools doing their musicals and thought about getting a master's degree in ethnochoreology, dance of the world. So applied for a Fulbright scholarship, and the only university offering this program was in Limerick, Ireland. So I applied there. I was accepted and really looking towards going there for a two-year stint to finish this degree. And my children were sick. So asthma, kidney reflux, migraines, and I was very resourceful, took them to all the specialists, and nothing was happening. <laughs> there was no progress. So one lovely little pediatrician, she lived on Whidbey Island where we were living. I believe her name was Dr. Mays. And she said to me, you should try homeopathy. There's some good results with asthma. So I found a homeopath that was very well known that lived right there on Whidbey Island, took my son. Within six months, his asthma was gone. I was blown away. So took my other children and similar experiences. They did very, very well. Went myself, and I'd been quite depressed over you know a number of different life events at that point. And slowly, I began to see the light of day and be uplifted and toying with the idea of getting more education in homeopathy because I was so amazed at the, the power and depth of homeopathy. So my mother who had been dead now, this is, I'm in my late forties now. So since I was 16, she had been dead and she came to me in a dream carrying flowers, white flowers and saying, this is exactly what you need to be doing because I had actually reached out to a couple of schools one in Minnesota, one in Canada, and both of them, uh, one of them had, the Minnesota school had invited me to come for a semester. So I was at this crossroads. This was summer, and in the fall, the semester was starting in Ireland. So I needed to decide what to do. And I love dance, and I, you know, it was a, a, a proven winner for me in terms of what I love to do, but I was intrigued by uh, homeopathy. 
So she basically said, this is perfect for you. It is exactly what you need to be doing, and you'll be really good at it. And that was really impactful for me. So I flew from Washington, where I was living, to Minneapolis, sat in on four days of class, loved it, absolutely loved it, knew it was what I wanted to do, flew back home, made the decision, and proceeded to commute back and forth between Washington and Minneapolis for about three months until we could collect everything and decide to move. And we packed up the kids and packed up our belongings, moved to Minneapolis. My husband had no job here. He did it on faith completely. And we arrived. Lo and behold, he ran into someone he knew from another job who said, oh, this particular company is hiring. Let's get you in for an interview. And boom, he got the job and the rest is history. So he had a job here. I finished four years of school here in Minneapolis and thinking we would leave as soon as I was done, but we've been here ever since. And that was in um, around 2000. So anyway, that's that's the history of what, what brought me to this point. And then in homeopathy school, I bumped into homeoprophylaxis, which is a natural method of educating the immune system against infectious disease. And I realized, wow, this is what parents are looking for because one of my three children, Lily, my baby from China, when we brought her home, she received all her vaccines, immediately went into aseptic meningitis, almost died, did not, but almost died. I started researching found aseptic meningitis is a side effect of the MMR. So I had gone to the pediatrician, announced that I found the reason for this. She completely denied it. She shamed me, scolded me for even thinking of this. And a light bulb went off for me realizing it's up to me to figure out how to care for my children. And this was years before I went to homeopathy school. So that happened in 96. And then it was 2000, the early 2000s, that everything happened that I just explained, and I started school. So when I bumped into HP, homeoprophylaxis, the puzzle pieces fell into place, and I realized this is the answer. This is totally the answer. And um, the first thing was writing the book, uh, The Solution. Uh, and then with a colleague, I formed a nonprofit organization where we trained homeopaths left that organization, started Worldwide Choice, held uh, three different international conferences, bringing researchers in to try and familiarize medical professionals with homeoprophylaxis, wrote a second book called There is a Choice, and then launched into making the film that uh, I launched in February of this year. The next film is coming out in the fall. So that's that's a nutshell. Wow, I mean, that's an incredible story, Scylla, that your that your mother came to you to to validate this interest and to push you farther along this path. And now look at what you've done with it. Look at all the people you've educated, all the children whose lives you have improved, and all the mothers that you have empowered. I just I'm so struck by the beauty of that story. Well, it's been a passion, Amber. And, you know, at one point, I kind of got on my knees and said, I can't do this. It's it's not up to me. I'm not driving this bus. Show me the way. I'll use my resources. I'll use my skills. 
and everything is just kept happening after that. So I, I don't take credit for it. It's, it's beyond my abilities. I just, I know that's what I'm here to do and I'm committed to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, that the piece around the empowering mothers to trust themselves, to trust their intuition, to trust their abilities to do their own research is something that I'm really passionate about. It's so Uh like that doctor telling you, no, that's not what happened to your child. That's not that's not a side effect, even though it is a documented side effect in the medical literature. And, um, you know, just so many, so many women have stories, and I'm specifically mothers of being shamed, belittled, put down, told Uh they're stupid, basically by their doctors and it's a really hard and scary thing to stand up against um disempowered very disempowered so let's let's dive more deeply into real immunity huge topic and let's spend the rest of the time talking about this what is real immunity and how does homeoprophylaxis play into this sure so we're bestowed with the gift of real immunity. As human beings, we are designed to move towards perfection. We're designed to detoxify, to be self-healing. I mean, look at a baby. Look at the, the beautiful energy that you see when you look at a baby that's pure and vibrant and alive. I mean, this is what we're imbued with. That's real immunity. And it doesn't come along from something outside of ourselves or something artificial. It's just a matter of how do we support that? How, how do we promote that and support it? Especially in the world today where we're bombarded with so much toxicity from every direction, emotionally and physically. Um, so it, it's not about going after something that isn't already there. You know, we already have it. It's just trusting it. And and that trust piece. So here here's my my theory, Amber. In 19 Oh, it was between 89 and 99 when direct to consumer marketing took place with the drug companies. Be, before that, I forget exactly what year. I think it was 97. There were no drug ads on TV at all. And we're one of only two countries, New Zealand, the U.S., that allows that. When those ads started coming on TV, it shifted the consciousness of the viewer. All of a sudden, it became very comfortable and familiar to see these drug ads and to feel like there's a drug for any symptom I have. So it promoted this concept that symptoms are bad. We need to suppress them. There's a drug to do that. Go to your doctor, ask for the drug, and then you won't have it anymore. So it it robs the entire concept of natural immunity. It robs that um, awareness that we have the capacity to heal. It is not overnight. It's not quick. It can take time, but it's there. So when I went into practice and I have all these parents coming to me freaking out over a 99-degree fever and running their child to the ER it became all too apparent to me that, wow, people have lost touch with their intuition because who knows their child better than the mother? They know their child. They carried that child. So, you know, it's it's not about a number on a thermometer. It's about their vitality. 
Yes, and vitalism is something as as an herbalist who's had many herbalists on the show that we've talked about a number of times here. And I love that um, homeopathy is there to support the innate vitality of Mm -hmm. the body of the person. And I really loved the way the chiropractor in your film, Real Immunity, put it. It right. just kind of made everything really click into place for me when she talks about, you know, like a, a sperm and an egg meeting. And then nine months later, there's a baby. Right. There's a whole life human intelligence. Being. Yes, yeah. that is the innate intelligence of life coming yeah. forth. And it's it's something that we are all born with and gifted with. And some people more than others, depending on genetics and the lifestyle choices of the mother. But um, I, <sighs> yes. So ever since I was pregnant with my first, who's going to be 12 in a couple of weeks, I've been just hyper-focused on how do I build the most intelligent immune system in these children? And for me, I made the choice not to vaccinate. And that's a hard choice. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I think that whole dichotomy is false and extremely right. um, detrimental to everyone, to right, every parent right. out there. But in, on the deepest level of my intuition, it did not feel right to me. And I did a lot of research and I continue to do so much research. I remember just thinking back then, like, I just can't wait for the future when there's even more research and maybe I'll know for sure if I made the right choice. And I don't think you ever really know that. But when I learned about homeoprophylaxis from you, I was just thrilled because here's something that totally makes sense. It's this idea of introducing the disease pathogen into the child's body in an extremely diluted form as homeopathy is. So it's basically just the energetic imprint that's left. And so the body learns its innate adaptive immunity to that pathogen so that if ever exposed to it in the wild, in real life, it knows how to how to fight it. Right. That's an excellent description. And I would add, it satisfies a certain susceptibility. So we each have particular susceptibilities based on our ancestry, our lifestyle, you know, a lot of variables. You may be more susceptible to certain types of diseases than I am and vice versa. So when you get that HP nosode, a certain susceptibility that you possess is being satisfied by receiving that. And then you won't uh, succumb to the disease. You have less of a chance of succumbing to the disease. Mm-hmm. And it one, one thing that really struck me that you said is that like when we are exposed to these infectious diseases in the real world, they don't come to us at the end of a needle into the bloodstream. They come to us through our mucous membranes. And right. that that's what we're doing with HP too. So it's um, it's giving us more long-lasting, natural cell-mediated immunity, which is very different from what vaccines do. Right. We're replicating how nature does it. Right. On it, an energetic level. Exactly. Yes. It, yeah. just, it makes so much sense. And there's absolutely no um, possibility of harm being done. No one has ever been hurt by taking homeopathy. Right. Because it's energetic. It's like saying, can you be hurt by a prayer or music or... A frequency. Yeah. Yeah. So for anyone listening who's like, oh, it's just energetic. That's nothing. I would like to share the story that I shared with you, Scylla, which was when I gave my daughters their first dose of the varicella nosode, which is chicken pox. Um, my oldest had no reaction at all, which didn't surprise me because she never caught the chicken pox. It just like it seems like, you know, her whatever her thing with that disease is not that no strong. susceptibility. Exactly. That's the word. Um, but my little one who was 
18, 20 months at the time, um, had a big immune reaction that day. We gave it to her in the morning and that afternoon she got super hot. She got a fever. She had her nose was runny and she went to bed about three hours earlier than usual, slept through the night woke up the next day and was like a brand new child. And I was hoping for that. I really wanted to see that immune reaction to know like, look, look, that energetic imprint of that varicella pathogen woke her immune system up. That's great. That's textbook. Really nice. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so, it's so beautiful. Um, So let's talk about this idea too of the pathogen versus the terrain. Yeah, so the whole concept of pathology is a little bit skewed because the medical model is that this germ comes into us, this microbe, and infects us and causes harm. And the reality is the body is this dynamic um, organism that is constantly detoxing on different levels through the detox organs, the skin, the mucous membrane, the bowels, the kidneys. And we interface with microbes because they've been here a lot longer than we have. And there's a lot more species than there are of humans of bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungi. And when we interface with them, we have a response based on our susceptibility. And that response can include some sort of discharge. And that's a healthy thing because it's exercising the immune system. So it's a very different way of thinking about disease. Instead of this fear-based avoidance of disease, it really is a necessary function Mother Nature put into place in order to exercise our immune systems. And children can get 10, 12 viruses a year. Some go unknown to parents. They're mild. One day, runny nose, um, slight fever, boom, it's over. But we're going to see that process where they go through a prodrome, then they have a discharge. Then what's they a, might what's have, a prodrome? The prodrome is the preliminary period before at, when the disease uh, enters your field. So something's not quite right, but there's no symptoms yet. So it's just the preliminary stage. And then the next stage, there's a chill. Um, The child may nap, fall asleep, be chilled, shivering, and then a fever can start generating. And then with that fever, the body starts to discharge and will cause some sort of eruption, maybe diarrhea, maybe vomiting, maybe pustules that are coming up like chicken pox. And then the fever may rise to really start to clear this... um, process in the body and then they come back to baseline they might have a sweat and then come back to baseline and they've gone completely around that circular phase of catching a virus and moving through it and it's a healthy process and so many times when people do homeopathy they're so accustomed to allopathic medicine that's intended to suppress a symptom that they're they're misguided in thinking that, oh, should homeopathy just stop this? And the answer is no. Homeopathy is intended to support that process. You're still going to go through all the stages, but you're going to go through more smoothly, more rapidly, and you're not going to get stuck anywhere and go deeper. So instead of four days of a virus, 
getting stuck in the vomiting or the diarrhea. It might be a two-day process where you move through each stage in a matter of hours. And that's supporting the system. Yeah, I had that um, made very clear to me recently. So my girls got whooping cough. And again, much very mild in my oldest and very severe in my youngest, 22 months. And I did not call our homeopath, who you know, Marcy, because I'm thinking, what can homeopathy do for this? Like everything I'm reading is telling me there's really nothing you can do for pertussis. You know, we were doing high dose vitamin C, but I was like, you know, homeopathy is not going to kill this bacteria or the extra toxins it releases, which is what makes it so bad. Like there's not much we can do. And then finally I was like, I'm, oh, and then I watched your video. So your um, influenza video that's available on your website. And you said, yeah. And you said what you just said, like actually what homeopathy is doing is helping to speed along the process. And I was like, oh, I know that. Okay. So I called Marcy. She asked a million questions as homeopaths do, which is so wonderful because you really listen and get to the heart of the problem. Mm -hmm. And then she made her recommendation and we got the Ipecac from the store and that within 30 minutes, Nixie had her first coughing spell that did not become a full-on paroxysm it was just a little cough and then that night for the first time she slept longer than one hour at a time that's lovely yeah that's lovely really nice she she has wonderful vitality see everything you've said about her the chicken pox episode the pertussis episode her vital force speaks loudly Mm -hmm. and it responds well to remedies Mm -hmm. so it's very reactive and very vital very strong vitality Yeah, well, that's good to hear. (laughs) And like, again, it's just it's something that I've really focused on is building up that terrain, knowing that different people can all be exposed to the same pathogen. But based on what is going on inside their body, some people are going to get very sick from that. And some people are not at all. Right. And this, Amber, is the beauty of homeoprophylaxis, because we don't know who will suffer from a particular disease. So why not prophylactically give HP to protect the weaker among us? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about fevers. This is another thing that I have talked about a lot. I've um, shot videos about it, talked about it on Instagram, and about not suppressing fevers. And I always get, always get mothers coming back at me like, what? That's crazy. You know, this is a problem that needs to be shut down as soon as possible. I would be terrified if I let my baby's fever run its course. Um, And I tell them I've never once tried to stop one of my kids' fevers. It's never been a problem. It's a really important thing to support them through. So tell us how suppressing symptoms only drives the illness in deeper and why we need to let fevers run their course. Right. So a couple couple of points. First of all, in the film Real Immunity, Dr. Kendra Becker talks, has a lovely, lovely interview about fevers and how um, when mothers get through a fever, it, it, it feels like they've walked through fire, <laughs> but they get to the other side and she supports them. And it, it's just a really lovely explanation of why we shouldn't be afraid of fevers and what they're doing physiologically um, to educate the immune system. So I recommend people take a look at that. Um, fevers are scary to parents and way worse for parents than the kids. And the fear is febrile seizures. 
So I have a um, free knowledge base you can access through my website, familyhomeopathycare.com. And in that knowledge base, there's information about fevers. So you can educate yourself about fevers. And I know many moms who've taken um, calcium lactate. It's a, a simple supplement you can get at the health food store. You can put it in juice or water and sip it. And it provides the calcium necessary because it's a, it's a deficit, a calcium deficit that can cause a febrile seizure. Febrile seizures are not dangerous. The children typically do not continue to have seizures when they have a febrile seizure. Now, this is very different than a child who, who's vaccinated, leaves the office and starts having severe seizures. That's not a febrile seizure. That's something different but just from high fevers. And some children are more prone. My own children had 105 degree fevers. I kid you not. They were very scary. They hallucinated during these fevers. And I couldn't get them down. I would try because you want to take the edge off. You don't want a child to be suffering. You just don't want to suppress the fever altogether. So they're on my website, therealimmunity.org website for the film, there's actually a free download of a health helix. And that helix explains this process of when we support the processes in the body, it builds immunity. And when we suppress those processes, it drives disease deeper. So I'll give you an example. When infants have eczema and Topical corticosteroids are used on the skin to suppress the eczema. The skin is related to the lungs, the respiratory system. So you suppress the skin and you start to having asthmatic symptoms. And then those are suppressed with inhalers, etc., and then you can start seeing emotional symptoms. So we're driving things deeper and deeper into the system. And I actually had a patient come in and said she'd been to the um, pediatrician. I think it was a pediatric ENT who said, yeah, it's so weird. All my kids with asthma, they all had eczema first. She had no idea why or how they were related. She just knew that she saw that frequently in her practice. And it's pretty logical, really. So... The goal is we don't suppress, we don't drive things deeper, we support the system with chiropractic, with energy medicine, with homeopathy, anything that's supportive. And this is not only at the physical level, this is at the emotional level too. And I can give you examples of that. But the, the point being, suppression on any level is detrimental to our evolution as human beings. We don't want that. We want to support and express. Mm -hmm. And looking at that image, that graphic that you're mentioning, you can you can really see. You can be like, oh, I know someone who who's going down that path, and right. you know, you, you you just you know the personal stories of people who followed that path, either upward into health or downward into ill health. And looking around at just how unhealthy so many people are so many of us especially my generation really people who are like parenting right now 
um, who were raised on processed foods, who were fully vaccinated without their parents questioning it at all, who were given, I was given three or four rounds of antibiotics a year as a kid for ear infections. Um, And you can see how unhealthy we all are and how we just have decades of that suppression and driving down and making everything worse to contend with now that we're hitting midlife and being like, why do I feel so terrible? Right. And you're seeing, we're seeing it really dramatically, even on young children right now. Yes. Yeah. Because so much suppression is taking place. I mean, a child goes in, I see this all the time in my practice, they go in two months old, they get eight different diseases, vaccines for eight different diseases. The mother leaves, the child develops an ear infection. She goes back in, there's no relationship acknowledged. Um, It's the body trying to discharge some of the toxins, basically, but that's not acknowledged. And they're given uh, antibiotic to suppress the symptoms. Takes the antibiotic, comes back two months later at four months, eight more disease uh, vaccines are given. The ear infections keep coming or sinusitis or, you know, chest infections. And it's this vicious cycle that gets set up where the child's chronically ill. And mothers these days think this is normal. This is childhood. Children should are always sick. And it's bizarre to me because that's not really the natural state of childhood. Yeah, I I told this story more deeply in the intro to episode eight when I interviewed Stephen Herod Buner, and we talked a lot about empowerment around your own health and about the great flu pandemic of 1918. Mm-hmm. But I, I know a family who for three generations now have formula fed, C-section, all processed foods, full vaccine, tons of antibiotics, and now this this fourth generation of children. Um, they're so sick and they talk about it all the time. Why are our kids so sick? I, when, one time their grandmothers was like, why are my grandkids always sick? And I wanted <sighs> to be like, I, I know why, you know, but I, I can't because they I already you think I'm crazy yeah. hippie over here. Um, but, and, but some, some of those family members in private have said to me like, Amber, like your girls are so healthy and beautiful and smart. And like, you're doing something right, you know, and even though we live so differently, like we see that what you're doing is working and we respect it. But they can't make the leap to make the change. They can't because the doctor is the expert. And they, right. they, they just don't trust themselves. And um, you interview right. a mother in your film, and I really, you know, she tells a story of like going through this whole thing with the doctor and not listening to her intuition and doing what the doctor said, and it doesn't really work out. And she realized, she says, I am my child's healer. Right, right. So important. It so is. So important. It is. And no that, one but that me. Was, yeah, that was my goal with the film, to really open that door to help parents see you don't need to be afraid. You are the expert because no one loves your child like you do. That qualifies you. Just get your information. Just learn. Yes. And no one loves your child like you do. And no one observes your child as thoroughly as often or has Mm -hmm. the same intuition of what might be going on beneath the surface as you do. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, when I took, I took both my girls into different doctors, different days saying like, I think this is whooping cough both times. No, no, you know, it's not whooping cough. No, come on, stupid mom. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. and and it was, and it was, and I knew it was, and it just, I just, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to take them home. I'm going to do as much research as I possibly can. And I'm going to take care of this on my own. And I did. And I, at this point, after going through 
two months of Pertussis hell feel, I feel so sharpened and so Mm -hmm. honed in my instincts as a mother and just super empowered and passionate about talking to more parents about, about all the options we have when it comes to building natural immunity. So Amber, my question to you is what makes it possible for you to go that route instead of just listening to the authority? What is it about you that can do that? Well, so, I mean, a lot of things, you know, I I could, we could take this so far back into my ancestors and their health and me being really loved and supported by my parents and grandparents, even great grandparents as a kid, and always being allowed to follow my curiosity. Because so in the film, you talk about this very thing parents losing themselves in fear when their kids are sick or when an authority figure like a doctor is breathing down their neck about something, which is so understandable. You know, we all do it. Um, You even talk about how a certain decision-making part of the brain gets shut down when we're in that kind of fear Mm -hmm. and how to counteract fear, three ways to counteract fear, information, intuition, and love. Mm -hmm. So I've got the love down. That's, again, super blessed to have been really loved by my parents. And that's been easy for me to love my kids fully. Um, The intuition, you know, like so many people in our culture, something I've had to work on. And I've been doing that for about two decades now. And as soon as I became a mom 12 years ago, I really felt that intuition come online. But the information is such an important piece because we do live in this super linear, logical left brain thinking society. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard for me and I'm sure for everyone to step out of that. So I can say like, I love my kid and I have this feeling about it, but I also want the research to back it up. Right, right. So I'm going to interrupt you because I'm going to reference exactly what you're saying about this love and support that you receive from your parents, your grandparents. And that is a graphic representation of the support of expression. Go back to the health helix where I talked about supporting. So emotionally, you were supported to express yourself and who you are. You weren't suppressed. Their love for you enabled you to ask questions, express your emotions or whatever it is. And as a result, you are able to more fully explore the possibilities in your life as opposed to being suppressed and being told, nope, there's one way, this is what you're going to do, there's no other way. So it's just another example of how supporting expression helps us to heal. It's like if you have a child in a messy room and you want him to clean up your room, the uh, mechanistic way to do it is to grab that child, force them to the toys, and move their arms to pick up the toys and put them away. The job will get done, but what have you done? The vitalistic way to do it supportively is to say, how about we clean up the room? I'll help you. And you proceed to help the child and act as a role model, and they're able to then move forward. So it's all about support, encouragement, love, you know, acceptance. This reminds me, too, of something that you talk about in your film, which is that healthy boundaries are very intertwined with healthy immunity. Mm-hmm. And I think being so loved and supported as I grew up um, and being someone always who's always open to more information 
and just trying to make my life better and work better. Um, boundaries is something that's really important to me and has become more and more so and supporting my kids and their boundaries. Um, I just thought that was a very like astute observation and something that a lot of people probably don't think about. Right. Because we don't associate immunity with anything but the physiological, Mm -hmm. but it really, I mean, holistically speaking, it encompasses everything and it's particularly a challenge for those people in the healing professions Um, so there's so, I have so many things in my notes here. I wanted to go back to what you were speaking about with, uh, the fever and your kids sometimes getting up to one Oh five, because again, I can imagine moms listening to this. And I remember growing up hearing once it hits one Oh four, you take that child right into the emergency room, you know? Um, but in the film, I think that the pediatrician that you named earlier, she talks about how between 103 and 105 is mm-hmm. when the body is really killing the most bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she gave a really great interview about about fevers. My own children, my daughter especially, because she'd been through that aseptic meningitis episode. So what happened was her body continued to spike this high temp in an effort to get up and over the healing process, kind of like a car with the wheels stuck in the snow, uh, spinning, 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 and not being able to get traction. So I treated her homeopathically um, and was able to get her past this repetitive process of these high fevers and, and into a more balanced ability to you know, get sick, get better and move through that cycle. So yeah, but it's scary. I mean, it's scary to parents, understandably. Yeah, totally. And I also really, I think it was the same woman talked about how the first cold a baby gets is going to last about 10 days. And I really hooked into that because that was my experience with both my girls, the oldest when she was eight months, the youngest when she was five months. And it is very scary and very hard to watch them go through that. And it lasts longer than most colds do and maybe longer than the other family members who had the same cold. So just knowing that I wanted to speak that on here for any moms with new babies or who are pregnant or will be in the future that that's really normal and so important for that baby to get through their first illness on their own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you nurse them, you hold them skin to skin, you get in the tub with them. I mean, they just, they need that contact. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just such a sweet time. And I know in our modern lives, it can be so hard that you have to go to work, you have to get them to daycare. And you just, it's so hard for modern mothers to find the time to slow down and just snuggle those babies. Um, But it's so important. And it goes such a long way toward the healing and recovery period. Right. Right. Yeah. It's challenging. Like you said, if they have to get to work or I don't know how mothers deal with it. I don't either. And 
truly after my oldest was born, I was like, I'm going to do whatever I can to build a business that I can work on from home. And I was broke for a long time trying to build that business. But I'm Mm -hmm. so glad when the second one came along 10 years later, because through this whooping cough, I mean, she just needed me constantly. And I wanted to be with her constantly. And again, up almost every hour on the hour at nighttime. I was so glad that we were still nursing and that I was able to just immediately give her that comfort and that nutrition and the Mm -hmm. sleep hormones to get her back into into bed right right it's great yeah um and i think another thing that a lot of people don't realize is that when these kids are allowed to fully go into their illness their immune system is allowed to fully launch its own adaptive response to what's going on that once the illness has run its course they're like brand new little people they have these huge developmental leaps forward that's so amazing to watch right and uh, dr deborah gambrell in the film talks about that and how some of these childhood diseases are intended to help them through certain developmental stages. I think she mentions uh, they start to crawl after one of them. I think it's mm-hmm. chicken pox. They're crawling. Measles, they're reading after that. So Mother Nature designed it. So these diseases come in certain windows of time during certain ages, right at these developmental marks. So the child can take this developmental leap. And not only does that happen? But it's also preventative for deeper, more chronic diseases later in life. We have studies that show us that. Uh, Neil Miller wrote a book called mm-hmm. Critical Vaccine Studies. Yeah. And it, it, the information's in there about measles, mumps, chickenpox being preventative for cancers, tumors, lymphomas, all these different, more um, chronic diseases later in life. Yes. And in fact, one thing that's really happening with these uh, massive across the board vaccinations is that older adults are having more shingles. Um, mm-hmm. The pertussis virus has mutated into mm-hmm. numerous or bacteria has mutated into numerous new bacteria that are right. not that the, vi- the uh, vaccine doesn't touch. So, you know, it's this idea of herd immunity is just so much more complex than we right. act like it's, it is. Herd immunity is about natural disease. And if you've heard uh, Dr. Tetiana Obukanich lecture, she talks about it in depth. Herd immunity is, is not artificially created with vaccines. That's erroneous. Um, and, you know, the, the post-surveillance studies that took place after the chickenpox vaccine was rolled out actually revealed that there would be an increase in shingles. And when that was brought to the CDC, it was shut down and they, the researcher, uh, Gary Goldman was told that they would just develop a shingles vaccine and that was it. And they basically stonewalled him and he went to Europe and published in a publication called vaccination, I think it or vaccines in Europe and Europe did not adopt the recommendation for the varicella vaccine as a result. Mm, but mm. what have we seen? This increase in shingles because nobody's getting those external boosts from being around children with wild chicken pox. So, I mean, you don't mess with mother nature and what kind of hubris is in place that we think we're superior to mother nature. Right. And that we think we can outsmart these ancient life forms. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. that are intelligent, that evolve, that evolve right. directly in response to what we're doing to them. Right. Yeah. Precisely. And it, it's so interesting to know that um, vaccines are causing some of these diseases to mutate into more virulent forms too. That's right. <laughs> terrifying. And then what, you know, the propaganda that we hear through the news is all the unvaccinated are causing this. Mm-hmm. And that's just not accurate. So the the lovely thing about homeoprophylaxis is it addresses mutated forms of pertussis mm-hmm. in particular and all these viruses or bacteria because it's based on a symptom picture. It's not based on the specific species or the mutation. It's the symptom picture. So no matter what the mutation, the symptoms are similar in pertussis and HP can address it. Amazing. I just, I'm so looking forward to getting through this. It's a years long process when you're doing the full HP schedule and program. And I just, I can't tell you what peace of mind it gives me to know that I am exposing my children to these infectious diseases and that they will kick up their own natural immune response to it. It just, you know, it really turns off that worry part of my of my mama brain. Am I doing enough? Am I doing it right? Right, right. We all worry. That's the the plague of parenthood, isn't it, Amber? <laughs> <laughs> Have I done it right? Are they going to be on a psychiatrist's couch 30 years from now complaining mm-hmm. about me? Yeah. 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 I hear you. I hear you. But, you know, the beauty of the HP program too is that it doesn't take the entire program to create that um, immunity the first dose does it. So the minute the first dose hits mucous membrane, you have some protection and the subsequent doses over time just go deeper and deeper into the system and last longer. Right. Yeah. It's really neat the way the um, program is laid out, the schedule of it. I was really fascinated reading about it. And as the logic dawned on me, I was like, man, homeopaths are smart. You know, it's a very specific kind of intelligence that's very different than what we're all raised with, as we're talking about here, just shut down the symptoms and then you're healthy. Um, Right. It takes, it just takes a deeper intelligence to really address what's going on. And we have Dr. Isaac Golden to thank for that program. He devised the program and uh, studied it for 15 years on a group of about 3,000 children. So that's the program that I've um, put into place with my families. And you, you touched on really the heart of it. Homeopathy is not about replacing um, a, a medical system per se. It's a different mindset. It's a different way to think about the body and health and the process of the vital force. And that's what's so beautiful about it. Yeah. Will you tell us a little bit more about Dr. Golden and about the, um, you know, the studies that have been done or the effects that have been seen in India and Cuba? Yeah. Dr. Golden initially in 1985 for a PhD thesis did a study with about 3000 children, followed them for 15 years used a number of uh, nosodes for childhood diseases. And what he found, to his surprise, was that the kids with HP were actually healthier than the kids who were unvaccinated. He anticipated it would be similar, you know, or the same or even unvaccinated being healthier. But uh, to the contrary, the kids with HP had fewer atopic illnesses, allergies, eczema, asthma, And it's because they were circulating the wild diseases with all the benefits and none of the risks. So that was a lovely study. And it's really the only study that's been done 
with childhood diseases. So some of the other studies have been uh, influenzinum with the, with the flu out of Brazil. That was double-blind placebo control with very good results. The conclusion being it reduces uh, episodes of the flu, it reduces symptoms of the flu, and carries no risks, is low cost, and effective. So that was a great study. Um, it's been, Cuba has used it a lot. Cuba has a, a, a PubMed study actually about leptospirosis, where they had a, a group of the population, a, a section of the population, 2.3 million people, and reduced the incidence of leptospirosis, a tropical disease that comes around annually, um, reduced it to zero after a couple of years using homeoprophylaxis. India, and they've done other studies in Cuba because they're very pro-natural medicine there. And then in India, uh, where homeopathy is a respected form of medical care, it's actually endorsed by the government. Government-trained and employed doctors utilize homeoprophylaxis. They go out to the backwater areas um, put up signs, come and get your homeoprophylaxis when there's an epidemic. So it's very well utilized and respected there. So I've interviewed uh, one doctor from India for the next film that's coming out called Passage to Real Immunity. And I'm delving deeper into the research behind HP, uh, interviewing more families doing HP, doctors using HP. I've interviewed Dr. Golden in Australia using HP. So all of that is going to be highlighted in the next film that'll be out this fall. Great. Um, okay, so we're going to wrap up soon. But I wanted to just touch a little bit more on what parents can do to build real immunity, like, you know, concrete action steps. And, and contrary wise, what, what, <laughs> What suppresses real immunity? Like there's a pediatrician in your film who says that the unhealthiest kids he sees in his practice eat processed foods, have been given many rounds of antibiotics and have been fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty daring comment that Dr. I know, Bob made. <laughs> I know, I know. And I'm just shaking my head because I know that's true from my own true. witnessing of people that yeah. I know in my life. And, you know, it's, of course, so much more complex than that. Like, it's all about how everything interacts, how, you know, the domino effect of one thing and another, and again, genetics and so many other things. Right. But basically, you know, a confluence of all those things really are a recipe for declining right. health throughout time. Right. And then for the really healthy people and children, it's, you know, proper nutrients, um, a strong microbiome, lack of stress as much as possible, good sleep. What, what else? Right. What do you recommend to the parents who come see you in your practice? Well, what you've outlined, Amber, with, the, with that is exactly what Dr. Samuel Hahnemann, the father of homeopathy, says in The Organon of Medicine, which is you've got to have the basics in place first. So diet, environment, stress, all of those things are essential as a foundation. And that's what I say to parents. You know, they, they come in feeling like they're not doing enough or they're doing something wrong. And I point out to them that the very fact they love their children and are giving them a stable home is huge. That's a huge piece of the puzzle compared to a child 
who's in a home with abuse or, you know, different negative conditions that are causing stress for that child. So number one, the diet, what goes into them. Number two, what's around them, you know, the environment and stressors, the most important factors. Then good homeopathic care is great. People can get through teen years and transitions and so many things with good homeopathic care. Having a good chiropractor who can keep the body in alignment, essential. And ideally, if your chiropractor knows something about nutrition and functional medicine, that's great. So they can also pick up any red flags about developmental problems or physical problems. And that's, that's your team right there. Having a pediatrician who has hospital privileges so that if you do need to go in for an appendicitis or a broken bone, you've, you've got a pediatrician on your team um, and, and build a team. You're not going to do this alone. Have a team in place and have these natural methods and have the basic building blocks of nutrition and support, love, and stress-free environment. Mm-hmm. The mother that you interview in your film, too, says, you know, it took her a while to find the right support people in her life, yeah. the right pediatrician. Like She had yeah. to go knocking on a lot of doors. Takes time. Yeah. And, you know, I want to acknowledge that there might not even be anyone in your area for a lot of people listening, but there's there's support online, at least, and there's podcasts like this and, and other ways of educating right. yourself. Right. And I, I would want to send people to the website naturallynicole.com. And this woman has created a list of vaccine-friendly doctors in every state. So she's always updating it if news comes in that somebody is not what they say they are, but doctors who will support you in your vaccine choices, whatever they are. Mm, great. So you can look for your state on her list. Okay. Um, and then let's talk about your website, your film, your books, just everything, everywhere sure, so- people can find out more. Yeah. So the film is realimmunity.org. You can access all my websites through just my name, com, And there's three portals. And those three portals are the film, which is realimmunity.org. They can purchase the hard DVD. They can rent it for three days, just streaming, download it. Um, and the next film in the series is coming out this fall. I think October is my target date for the next one coming out. They can also sign up for the newsletter so that they'll be uh, made aware of anything new coming out. Um, my private practice is familyhomeopathycare.com. And that's where I take um, constitutional care, children, adults, um, my book is available there. I have two books, uh, The Solution, and There is a Choice. They're both available on Amazon. And I do Cease Therapy as well, which is a, a method to detoxify from anything, from vaccines, antibiotics, pesticides. And then the third site is worldwidechoice.org. And that's an informational site about homeoprophylaxis. So in order to access a homeoprophylaxis program or travel prophylaxis, people can just email me through any of those sites, and then I will send them out lots of information um, to answer their questions. And my goal with the HP programs, Amber, is education and empowerment. I don't sell kits. I don't sell products. What I offer is a program that's educational. So 
The parent receives a kit. They receive a booklet to keep records in. They receive training from me over Skype and then support throughout the program from me. So it's, it's really my emphasis on the education piece. Okay. I want to add to that um, at your second website that you named. Um, you Family have, on the app. Yes. Can. You have some online courses. Oh, I do. I have courses for influenza, uh, I mean, sorry, influenza, first aid, um, cell salts. There's the free knowledge vault and there's a membership site. So if you join the membership site, I give a webinar each month on a different topic. And then the second time in the month, two weeks later, I do a Q&A. So it's just access to me. We talk back and forth. I'm open to any questions. We can talk about the prior webinar or anything that comes up. Um, usually it's been just a few people. So it's been pretty intimate, really nice. And all of those are recorded and archived. So if you join the membership site, you have access to all the old recordings. Great. And, you know, I just I want to say one more thing. So you got into homeopathy as a mother wanting to support her children's health. Um, the homeopath that mm -hmm. I'm working with, Marcy, same thing. And she told me she got into it from Meredith Benson, who was a homeopath up in my area who passed away suddenly a few years ago. All my mom friends used her and loved her, though. Oh, and wow. that when they were young moms together, they were, you know, looking for ways to support their children's health. And Meredith said, Marcy, you know, look into homeopathy. Both of them changed their lives as mothers. That happened to you too. And I'm thinking about everything we've talked about with moms being their children's healer and trusting themselves. And I think about what I heard a doctor say once that he trusts mothers. He trusts mothers over himself when he's looking at their children. He trusts mothers over the scientific test results he's getting. He said, trust mothers. And that Lovely. isn't that beautiful. That is one reason that this, this medicine makes so much sense to me, because I trust mothers. Mm -hmm. It's lovely, really nice. That's a wise doctor. Yes. <laughs> okay, Scylla, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, Amber. It was lovely to be here. All right. How great is Scylla? Okay, so I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna really talk more about vaccines here in a way that I've been avoiding doing for such a long time. First, I really want to make clear that in the intro, when I was talking about it being like just this massive gray area, I don't mean that it's like foggy or unknown or, um, you know, anything like that, like obscured. I just meant that it's not black and white, that it's complicated. It's complex. It's nuanced. That is what I meant by the gray area. So three big, um, three big myths or just misunderstood ideas, three false ideas that really um, like dominate the conversations about vaccines are one that it, that it's like bulletproof that it's a sure thing that you get that shot and boom you're immune two uh that you're immune forever and three that there are no downsides so the first one um yeah again as i said in the intro for sure most people who get vaccinated are less likely to get the diseases against which they're vaccinated uh at least for a time 
but not everyone doesn't work that way for everyone. For some people, they get the disease, you know, that injection gives them the disease. Um, and things like pertussis, whooping cough, it's actually my understanding from multiple sources is that it's basically like the least effective vaccine. Um, a ton of vaccinated people get whooping cough. And I even just read a study, I think you get five doses of pertussis vaccine over the years that the more doses you get, the more likely to catch it you are. It's like the inverse of how it should work with that particular disease. Um, so, you know, they just, it's not a guaranteed thing. It's not a guaranteed thing for everyone. Um, it's just something to acknowledge and it doesn't last forever for anyone. Vaccines offer temporary immunity. That's what booster shots are for. Uh, when's the last time you got a booster shot or any adult, you know, was like, Oh, got to re up on that measles vaccine or, you know, of course they don't come individual like that. The MMR or the DTAP. Um, you know, so this is just this other like false uh, security, this other sense, this sense of false security that we have around vaccines being like, cool, now I'm totally immune forever. My kids are totally immune forever. And it's just not true. It's just, again, more complicated. So something to keep in mind. Um, but what I found, what I find really interesting and much more compelling than just those two facts are is the idea of the vaccine trade-off and the damage to deep health and deep immunity, the vital intelligence of the immune system that happens when we vaccinate, especially on the schedule that we use in America today. Um, so there's a new book out by Dr. Thomas Cowan called Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness. I was so stoked when I saw this book um, a few weeks ago online somewhere because it just immediately, just from the title alone, I was like, yes, this is going to explain things that I have been picking up on, thinking about, and wondering about for years. That's exactly what it did. Um, so when my oldest was born 12 years ago, you know, I researched as much as I could at the time. It was a different world. Even the internet was a very different place back then in 2006. And um, I didn't really have the information that I have now through the books I'm going to talk about. I didn't have the hardcore facts that are now available. I just had this really deep sense that vaccines F with the immune system in a way that I wasn't comfortable doing for my child, especially because as I spoke about, um, I see mutated viruses and like novel infectious diseases as much more of a threat in today's world than these older diseases that, again, were already on the steep, steep decline because of changing um, hygiene practices and America coming out of the Industrial Revolution and the cramped and unhygienic living quarters of people back then. Um, so just much more focused on building the innate intelligence of the immune system. And um, so this book really finally for me, like laid out, lays out the science and the process behind just how vaccines disrupt the immune system. Uh, so I'm so grateful for it. And he has been interviewed on the Wise Traditions podcast. The title of that episode is The Vaccine Trade-Off. I really, really recommend it. 
but let me just try to summarize summarize what what he's saying here and again highly recommend listening to that podcast or just getting the book to fully understand it so there are two different um, processes in the immune system and actually possibly quite more i was just reading this really interesting um page by a a immune immune researcher i don't think he's like an anti-vax guy at all but he just kind of came out with this story this pay this pose, I don't know, just about just how complex the immune system is and how we're still really at the beginning of even understanding how it works. And so no one can claim, not me, not anyone specifically, certainly, I mean, not vaccine manufacturers who are profiting off of these vaccines, um, that we totally understand how immunity works. Like, yeah, no, this is how it works. So this is great. We're just going to go ahead and do this and call it done. Um, it doesn't work that way, but so there's the cell mediated immune system and there's the humoral immune system and the cell mediated is like the first line of defense. And once a disease organism enters the body, especially through the mucous membranes, as it's supposed to, when you catch a quote wild disease, you know, so this is not getting it through a vaccine. This is getting it, um, in the real world or through HP then the uh, cell-mediated immune system comes online. And I am not an expert on this in any way. I've just spent a lot of time over the last few months trying to understand it. And Dr. Callum breaks it down in this book. Um, so this is when like the symptoms will start to arise. This is when the body is showing you, telling you something's going on. Vomiting, diarrhea, um, runny nose, fever, coughing, all that kind of stuff. The, and then the humoral immune system comes online, and this is when antibodies are manufactured. Um, and so when we vaccinate, we skip over the cell-mediated response and go straight into the humoral response. We go right into, let's produce as many antibodies as possible. And that's what the adjuvants that are in vaccines are for, the aluminum, the marisol, and other things. Um, if they weren't in there, the body would not have an immune response to just the disease organism that's being injected. And of course, there are other ingredients in vaccines as well. But these adjuvants have to be added to vaccines to like piss off the immune system, to wake it up, to get it like, oh, no, this isn't good. Okay, well, now I'm awake and now I can sense this disease organism has entered the body. So I'm going to pump out these antibodies. And, you know, the theory behind vaccines is that then the body knows how to deal with that disease organism if it ever comes across it in the wild in the future. Um, the problem with this is that when you skip over the cell-mediated immune response, you are really missing something very important. You're really missing the, like, actual waking up of that vital intelligence of the body. And so it's not... Again, it's not a guaranteed thing that if that person comes into contact with that disease in the future, in the real world, that their body is going to know how to deal with it because you skipped over the very important cell-mediated immune response. Um, I just want to say again, this is all more complex than what I'm presenting right here. I'm really giving a brief overview. Uh, and so when we measure titers in the blood, you might have heard about that, you're measuring um, the antibodies, you're measuring what happens when just the humoral system is, um, is activated. 
Um, so what happens as well when we vaccinate on the schedule that we do in this country, which is so over the top, is that we are constantly prodding the body to create antibodies. That's what the adjuvants are doing. And we are skipping over the really important first step of the cell-mediated response where the body gets to um, <laughs> cleanse you know, like really work, work through the disease, work through what's happening, get to know it on that really basic level. It's like two intelligences meeting each other. It's the intelligence of the disease pathogen, the virus, the bacteria, maybe the fungus and the immune system, these intelligences meeting each other and how the immune system is responding. Um, so when there's a constant, um, you know, unnatural prodding of the immune system and this release of antibodies that's just like totally over the top, it sets the body into this cycle that in time or immediately can become autoimmune issues. And in that, in that podcast, Dr. Cowan says even like 40 years down the line, autoimmune issues can arise because of the overstimulation, like fake, unnatural overstimulation of the immune system that happened in childhood from vaccines. And again, as I've said so many times on the show, I just feel like so many of my friends, so many people around me are constantly being diagnosed with a new autoimmune issue. I'm in my late 30s. Most of my friends are my age or in their 40s. And it just kind of seems like the time in life when a lot of people's health starts to decline in this new modern world that we're living in. Um, and I just thought it was really interesting to have this now framework for exactly why that's happening. And just to help me understand, um, to, to really have like the facts behind, again, what I intuited so strongly when my oldest was little. And it was a really hard decision not to vaccinate. You know, it always is. And there's always going to be people in your life who give you shit for it. And that's really hard too. And both of my parents were like, really? Like, come on, you know, vaccines are this modern miracle. And, um, but then over time, they both totally came to agree with me and to think that I had made the right choice just by doing their own research, you know, within, within time, they were both like emailing me new studies or new stories and, um, just felt really grateful to finally have their acceptance and support in that decision um, that I had made. So <laughs> i just briefly tell this story that in 2016, my daughter at her little school here um, had, so it's a Waldorf school. It's a free charter Waldorf school. It's the first charter Waldorf school in the nation, which is just an amazing blessing. I didn't know it was here when I moved up here. And I just can't believe how truly blessed we are to have this school in our lives. But a lot of the kids are not vaccinated. A lot. I think, I think it might be the most unvaccinated school in the country. Certainly one of them. Um, my county also has lower vaccination rates than a lot of other counties. And the highest breastfeeding rate of any county in California, which is so cool. A lot of home births here too. Um, so a child at her school tested positive for measles. I still don't know who this child is. You know, the school did a really good job of keeping him or her private. 
Um, and our school director at the time was interviewed by a nearby news station out of Sacramento. And he kind of mentioned like, yeah, we respect parents' choices around whether or not they vaccinate. And so this like ends up on, you know, mainstream media. This ends up in publications online and newspapers all over the country. And I made the mistake of scrolling down to the comment section on one of these, I don't know, it was like the Washington Post or New York Times or something, some mega publication, um, and just reading like the vitriol and how, oh my gosh, again, just people fighting like crazy over this issue. That was really when it became so clear to me that this is like the divisive issue of our times. And so meanwhile, so here's like the whole country fighting over what parents at my children's, my child's school are doing. Meanwhile, though, us parents, so here's just one, a memory from that week. That week is that my friend had her daughter's eighth birthday party, I think it was. I don't know how old she was. But anyway, I was standing around in the kitchen with maybe like 10 other parents and we were all talking about it because the kids who weren't vaccinated had to stay home from school for like a week. So we were like, is your kid in school this week? Is yours? Is yours? And some of us had vaccinated. Some of us hadn't. Some had started vaccinating when their kid was little and then stopped. Some had one kid who was and one kid who wasn't in different orders. Um, You know, just it was like we ran the gamut of vaccinating versus not vaccinating or vaccinating to not vaccinated parents. And no one was fighting. No one was calling each other names or accusing people of putting their child in danger. It was just like, yeah, it's a really complicated issue. That must've been a hard choice for you to make. Yeah, that was a hard choice for me to make. And you too. Yeah, totally. And it was just like to contrast this group of parents who were able to just think rationally, be reasonable, like admit that it's such a hard choice to make and that we're all making the decision that we think is best for our kid um, versus like the way people were fighting and talking about us out in the larger culture and online was really striking to me. Um, And it just really brought home how contentious this issue is, how hard it is for parents to make and how much compassion that I have for every parent who has to make this decision, which is every parent. Um, and you might be wondering, yeah, California did pass a law a couple years ago that you cannot opt out of vaccines for personal belief reasons anymore. So, you know, which is what we had did when my oldest entered kindergarten. Um, so now you have to try to get a medical exemption. And apparently there are ways to do that. Um, you know, different doctors and medical professionals who will for there has to be a reason, you know, but who will help you get that medical exemption so your child can keep going to school. And yeah, also on that note, I totally understand that some parents like vaccinate just to get their kids in school who don't even really want to. I totally get why you would have to do that. So let's talk about my family's um, experience with whooping cough this summer. Oh my gosh, it was awful. It was awful. And yet knowing how terrible it was and what we went through, everything that I learned through the experience and how much deeper I dove into vaccine research still says to me that I would not make the choice to vaccinate. I wish we had done the HP, the pertussin, no-sode. Um, 
back when we started the HP program instead of the varicella, because who knows, you know, in theory, they wouldn't have gotten it. They wouldn't have picked up the wild pertussis strain because their body would have already been educated on how to deal with it and would have processed it out before it got deep into the lungs and became what it became. Um, so my oldest started coughing one week and it like seemed, you know, it was a bad cough, but it was so irregular. It's just like a few times a day. And then she'd have this whole spasm and then that was it. And she was insistent that she was fine. And then she's with her dad half the time. So she wasn't with me all the time. And the week she was with him, I was just like not thinking about it, you know, and she came back and she's like, no, I'm still fine. And I'm like, okay. And I did post in like a Facebook forum um, like health and herb stuff about it. And someone suggested that it might be whooping cough. And I really looked into it and I was like, yeah, this might be, huh? Well, I'm not sure. And then she seemed like she was getting better, but then the little one got it. Nixie got it. Um, this was, you know, before she turned two, she was, she was 22 months. Yeah. And it was so much worse with her as it tends to be with little ones. Um, but we still, for the first few days, we were just like, oh, she got Mycie's cough. Okay. That sucks. You know? And then she started doing the paroxysms and then she started barfing as she was coughing or right after she coughed. And immediately I was like, oh my gosh, it is whooping cough. Like, oh my God, my kids have whooping cough, you know? And the school had actually sent out this um, like notice from the health department a few weeks before saying, we expect this to be a big protest this year. So I kind of had it on my mind already. Um, and so I took them both to the doctor. They both ended up going to two different doctors. I took the oldest one into the ER and then the younger into, um, just a like local clinic. And both of these doctors insisted that it was not pertussis. And so this is like what I'm talking about in this episode about moms and parents really needing to listen to their instincts and be empowered around your own child's health. Um, because they just didn't believe me. They, they wouldn't listen to me. That's not what it is. Um, and, and it turned out that that is what it was. And the reason I know that is because another child who got it from my child tested positive. They wouldn't even test my girls, but she did the test and it was positive. Um, so I truly already knew that's what it was. Like, there's nothing else like pertussis. Nothing sounds like that. Nothing. There's just no cough like it. Um, but for anyone listening and the people in my life who like needed the scientific proof, that's what it was. There's the proof, you know, we know my child gave this child the pertussis and she tested positive for it. Um, and you know, I wouldn't have taken antibiotics for it either way because it was already so far advanced. And from what I've read, it's only if you take them like the very beginning, like almost before there's even symptoms. So how would that happen? Um, might antibiotics help? Um, but you know, in my mind, antibiotics are almost never worth it, never worth that decimation to the microbiome unless it's truly a life or death situation. Um, and so all this deep research that I did online, especially through Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, um, I, you know, the, there's, there's not much you can do. So there's the bacteria that causes it. And then there's all these like secondary toxins that the bacteria excretes. And that is why pertussis is so hardcore and is such a difficult illness to deal with. Um, so the best thing you can do is high dose vitamin C. And, um, if you just like Google Suzanne Humphreys, high dose vitamin C, you'll find this very, very long webpage that she has about 
pertussis, how it works, um, how it's been mutating, I'll talk about that, and how to calculate like the high dose vitamin C for your child's body. Um, so we did that and it helped a lot. And then I also told the story of the uh, Ipecac homeopathic remedy. That's really what started to turn it around. Um, oh gosh, it was hell. It was awful. So for three weeks during the paroxysmal stage, there's three stages to pertussis. There's when they're just first start coughing for like a week and you're like, oh, my kid has a cough. And then there's the paroxysmal stage, which can last very different lengths depending on, you know, the child, how healthy they already are um, and how you're taking care of them really. And I'm sure many other factors as well, but ours lasts about three weeks again. And that's on the very shorter end of what's possible. I think it's because of the high dose vitamin C and that I was still breastfeeding. Oh my gosh. So grateful to have still been breastfeeding and just knowing that my body was producing exactly the antibodies and the other things that her body needed to deal with this infection. Um, she was waking up every hour on the hour, which is also a sign that it's pertussis, uh, to clear her lungs. And she would barf a lot of the time, just like middle of the night throwing up constantly through those weeks. Oh, it was so exhausting. It was so exhausting. And then, you know, the rest of the time and throughout the day, she, she was fine. Like her energy was fine, but then she'd have a paroxysm and the coughing would just overtake her. Um, oh, so sad. Oh, it's just so sad to think about it happening to little babies too. Like, you know, little babies die, little babies die of pertussis. So again, here, this is, you know, possibly where vaccines really have their place. Um, and so now in, in Chinese medicine, pertussis is called the hundred days cough. We are at about exactly a hundred days. The day I'm recording this, it's been like three, three months and a week, three months and two weeks. And she still coughs every now and then. Um, I've read and been told by other moms who've gone through it that for up to a year when it's really cold outside or after they've like physically exerted themselves that they can have a coughing spell, but it's just nothing like it was. It's nothing like it was. So one of the really interesting things I learned through this is that like bacteria are developing resistance to antibiotics and mutating into new forms. Um, pertussis is mutating into new forms thanks to the vaccine. So there's one form called parapertussis, and then there's at least a couple others that it's now taking on, and the vaccine does not uh, work against those. As we talked about in this interview, they, these mutations are new, um, but as Silla said, the HP does address them. But I just thought that was so interesting, you know, because we talk about herd immunity, and it's just, again, so much more complex than, well, if everyone was vaccinated, no one would get sick anymore. Um, herd immunity really only can be achieved naturally and like in the wild with the wild, um, strains of these, of these disease pathogens and not through vaccination. So another interesting disease and talking about herd immunity is measles. Um, measles like chickenpox is really no big deal when kids get it and strengthens the immune system. It protects against further and later um, diseases that can happen in life. And it often like catapults the child into a new phase of being. They grow through it. It's this really amazing process that is so natural that human beings have been going through forever that we just cut off when we vaccinate and do this 
you know, false, unnatural, temporary, um, immune <laughs> jabbing into the body, jabbing this immunity into the body. Um, so now people don't get exposed to measles naturally because we get the vaccines. And then for the first few decades of our lives or decade or two or less, maybe we are quote immune to it and we don't catch it anymore. So it's not circulating in the population like it used to. So what happens is when that immunity wears off, um, we're just, we're walking around without immunity to measles anymore. And Dr. Cowan gives this analogy of the Native Americans when the white European colonial settlers came over and, you know, we know that one of the huge weapons of devastation that was used against the indigenous people of the Americas was disease. And measles was one of those diseases. And the Native American population just had absolutely no immunity to it because they had never been exposed to it before. And Dr. Cowan's analogy is that we are now in that same place with measles as a country. Um, where no one is getting exposed to the wild strain anymore. And so when we come across it later in life, years and decades after our immunity has worn off, it's like we've never seen it before. And so we're creating this like very vulnerable, this big vulnerability in our population by vaccinating for measles for later in life exposure. Um and then a, a third disease and a really interesting herd immunity concept to think about is varicella, chickenpox, and shingles. So when the varicella zoster virus gets into the body, it first manifests as chickenpox. And then, and I got it when I was four in preschool. My sister got it too when she was two. Um, and then the virus goes to sleep in the nerve cells of the body and it can be reawoken later in life and become shingles, which is what happened to me last May. Um, I had a really stressful trip out of town, and then I came back and I got some dental work done on my lower right back molar. And a couple days later, it started really hurting around that area, and then the pain was spreading through my head, through my trigeminal nerve, which comes off of the like temple in the head. And it just took over my entire head. And it was so intense and crazy. I couldn't believe it. And it took me 10 days to figure out that it was shingles. I just thought it was because I'm prone to pain in my right side of my head anyway. I thought it was just like over the top from the trip and the dental work. And then finally got like this rash on my right forehead and realized that it was shingles. Um, so shingles used to be considered an old person's disease. And it is no longer that. And one of the reasons for that, I think another reason is that young people are much more stressed than we used to be, you know, the economy and like just financial stresses of, of my generation. It's just a really different world than my parents and grandparents were living in. But another big reason for that is because now that we vaccinate for chickenpox, which started in the early 90s, um, again, the wild chickenpox is not circulating through the population. So we are not constantly being exposed to it without even realizing it and giving our immune systems a workout, uh, giving our immune systems the chance to, to deal with varicella when they come across it. So because little kids are being vaccinated, it's not circulating in the population our immune systems aren't getting the workout that it needs. Um, when that stress triggers the awakening of the varicella out of the ganglia of the nerves, 
my my immune system was like, oh, I don't know how to deal with this. I haven't seen this virus since you were four. Um, so that's 34 years ago. So, oops, now you have full-blown shingles. Um, and <laughs> a researcher, Gary something, Gary Goldman, PhD, um, he predicted this. He predicted that this would happen. He was specifically researching varicella and the chickenpox vaccine. Um, and he was all for it. You know, he thought, as most doctors do, that vaccines were like this amazing, amazing thing. And the, just the height of like science and medical science. And he realized that this was going to happen. And he started like telling people, telling his bosses and telling other medical researchers and pharmaceutical companies about it. And they were like, yeah, we know that's going to happen. And we're just going to make a shingles vaccine, which they did, which they did. And when I had shingles, um, it was crazy how hard the doctors in the ER were trying to push it on me. And then I was in like Walgreens a couple of days later to get toothbrushes or toilet paper or something. It was covered covered in advertisements for this new shingles vaccine. Um, so, you know, it's just interesting. And I think that those three examples of, of how complex and all the nuances around these infectious diseases, um, measles, chickenpox, and the pertussis are really interesting and really kind of shed light on the idea of herd immunity and just show us how much more complicated it is than we pretend when we talk about vaccines. Um, so I want to talk about another book. It's called Miller's Review of Critical Vaccine Studies, 400 Important Scientific Papers Summarized for Parents and Researchers. Uh, so, and of course he gives, you know, the, the journals that these that these studies were originally in. So you can find the full study if you want. These are just short little summaries of what these studies showed. Um, here's like the, the Journal of the American Medical Association is one that comes in here a lot. And, you know, a lot of these are um, abbreviated, so I'm not sure what all of these journals are. The Biomed Research International Journal, um, neurochemistry something. So my point is that these are all real medical journals. All these studies are out there. And let's see, it's divided into, wow, a lot of, there's a lot of chapters. I won't read them all, but I'll just give you some ideas, um, of chapter titles and the types of studies that are covered. Uh, thimerosal, which is mercury, aluminum, influenza, pertussis mutations, pathogen evolution and imperfect vaccines, uh, the flu shot, HPV, measles and MMR, chickenpox and shingles, polio, hepatitis, rotavirus, allergies, seizures, diabetes, premature and low birth weight in infants, SIDS, cancer and natural infections, um, non-vaccination by doctors and nurses, Doctors and nurses choose not to be vaccinated themselves at much higher rates than the rest of the population. Education level of non-vaccinating parents and conflicts of interest, fault studies, and industry control. So there's a lot here. You know, it's just like, why, why would you not want to know this stuff? Why would you not want to know this stuff is what I come back to again and again. Um... And, you know, let me, let me also explain, you might be wondering what I said earlier, that even though the pertussis 
experience was so, so awful. And even though I know that if I had vaccinated my girls, they might not have caught it. Um, the main reason I still wouldn't do it, of course, there's many others, such as I don't want to create autoimmune issues, is that that disease got to work itself out at the interface of the lungs. And the lungs are, of course, an incredibly vulnerable spot when it comes to so many diseases. But for me, especially when it comes to influenza, and the reason that people died in the great flu pandemic of 1918 was because of the lung infection that that influenza virus caused. Um, you know, the autopsy reports of what people's lungs look like after that are so horrific. And so now that my girls' immune systems have got to really work out this incredibly noxious bacteria from at the interface of the lungs, it gives me hope that perhaps we really strengthened that area of their body. Um, and I have no scientific research to back up what I just said. Influenza is a virus and pertussis is a bacteria. So they're clearly two different pathogens, but still like that, the lungs got that interface that the immune system learned, like how to send what was needed to the lung tissues. I don't know. It just makes me feel a little bit better about their, their chances to survive a future influenza pandemic outbreak. Um, so the third book here is Dissolving Illusions, Disease, Vaccines, and the Forgotten History by Suzanne Humphreys, MD, who is the one who has that awesome page up about high, high dose vitamin C and pertussis, um, and Roman Bistrionic. This is a thick book. Um, they really, really go into the history of vaccination starting, you know, hundreds of years ago with the first idea that this might work and people rubbing rubbing the pox into their open sores on their arms and stuff. And um, there's charts in here that really show what I've spoken about twice already, that these infectious diseases that we vaccinate against today were already almost gone when we started the vaccine um, campaigns. So, you know, a lot of people say, but look, vaccines eradicated this or that issue. And when you actually look at the timing, you see that that's just not the case. Again, it was like different hygiene practices and us understanding the germ theory um, and just the American way of life really changing from this like dirty, overcrowded industrial revolution time to what's going on today, which <laughs> not even really better for human health, but it's definitely different. Um, and oh, one thing that I found really interesting in this book is that people have been against vaccination since the very beginning. There has always, always, always been people being like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. I don't like this. I don't want this for myself or my children. Let's really think about the logic behind this. This is kind of weird. I'm not so sure. Um, including like protests, like people in the streets with signs, sometime in the 1800s. There's photos of it in here. Um, so I just, again, if you like, if you like history, or if you just want to see those charts, I'm sure you can find them online too. There's just a lot of really interesting information in here that kind of rewrites the way that we've told the story of vaccines to ourselves in the past. Um, so I think, I 
think I said everything I want to say. I know I rambled more than usual in this outro, um, but that's because I'm assuming that a lot of people are not listening at this point and that the people who are listening really want to hear it. Um, you know, there's, there's so much more. Again, there's so much more to all of this than just what I've shared. I'm only sharing what's been capturing my attention and what really got my focus, especially this summer while we were dealing with the terribleness of the varicella and the pertussis. And I just went crazy learning so much more. So, so, so much more. So, you know, yeah, it's just so much. There's so much and I'm super rambling and I'm going to stop and thank you for listening. And I wish you abundant, abundant health and a vital, vital immune system. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find my blog, handmade herbal medicines, past podcast episodes, and a lot more at mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, I invite you to click the purple banner across the top of the page to take my quiz, which healing herb is your plant familiar? It's a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with the medicine that you're in need of. If you love the show, please consider supporting my work at patreon.com slash medicine stories. There's some killer rewards there, um, exclusive content, access to online courses, free, beautiful, downloadable ebooks, coupon codes, giveaways, and just amazing gifts provided by past guests of the podcast. All of that stuff is at the $2 a month level. Um, for a little more, you can access my herbal ebook or my small online course and that's all there as a thank you, a huge thank you from me and from my guests for listening, for supporting this work. I love figuring out what I can give to people on Patreon. It's so fun. And I love that Patreon makes it that you can um, contribute for such a small amount a month. I'm a crazy busy and overwhelmed mom and adding this project into my life has been a questionable move for sure, but I love doing it and I love the feedback that I get from you all and I just pray that the Patreon continues to allow me the financial wiggle room to keep on doing it while giving back to everyone who's listening um, if you're unable to do that, or if you'd like to support further, I would love it if you would subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would review the podcast on iTunes too, really helps get it into other ears. And it means so much to me when I read those reviews. It's, um, like the highlight of my week when I check them and see new ones and people are amazing. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much. The music that opens and closes the show is by Marie Sue, M-A-R-I-E-E-S-I-O-U-X. It's from her song Wild Eyes, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. Thank you so much, and I look forward to you next time. <laughs>